WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. When people look at metals every day, they don't usually think about what they're made of. Usually the metallic objects we interact with are made of a few metals. Today we're speaking to Gita Kumari, who studies materials that have 18 different elements together. Gita, may you please tell us about yourself and your research? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. I'm Gita Kumari, a PhD student with Dr. Carl Bollert group in the Chems department. I'm a joint doctoral program student under which I'm also enrolled at Indian Institute of Technology, Madras in India. Talking about my research, I'm a material scientist and materials can be divided into several categories. For example, ceramic, glass, metals, or polymers. My group at MSU only deals with metals and my research mainly focuses on mixture of metals, which is also referred as alloy. And I work on a particular type of alloy, as Chelsea said, which has 18 different elements together, which is referred as super alloy. Yes, it sounds similar to a fixious character, Superman, but super alloy is for real. The super alloy I'm working on has major application in a flight engine or nuclear reactor. Thanks for joining us this morning, Gita. One thing that I noticed is that you said that your super alloys are made of 18 different elements, but are they all metals or are they also other kinds of compounds such as liquids or gases that are involved in the mixture of the super alloy? In 18 elements together, there are some gases involved, but there are very small amounts such as like 0.005% out of 100% of phosphorus or some amount of nitrogen, but the majorly they contain all metals together. Gotcha. So phosphorus and nitrogen are the two gases that you mix in with your metals. That's really interesting. It's kind of like adding a little bit of that gas maybe makes it a stronger metal. That makes me wonder, how is this made? Because you're mixing so many things together, and I know that every laboratory is different. So what equipment are you using to make this? Yeah, talking about making these alloys, uh, I can compare the situation when you have to prepare a sugar syrup. So you generally take your sugar and heat it at a temperature and, and then it starts melting and you have a sugar syrup if you add some amount of water in it. So similar to this, I mean, we don't add a water in it, but yeah, we take our metals together and we heat it at a temperature where they melt together and they mix it together and then we cool it down. But well, we don't make these alloys at our laboratory, but we get it from outside and then I heat it in a furnace. Similarly, how we make it, we also heat it at high temperature, but not that enough to melt it. I can imagine the difficulty that's involved in the process of creating a super alloy to begin with. So it's really great that you don't have to spend most of your PhD actually creating the super alloy rather than just trying to understand it. When it came to heating up the super alloy in your furnace, what kinds of properties are you trying to understand regarding this super alloy? So when you take any metal or any alloy here, for you, it's just a small piece of block of metal or a piece of alloy. But for me, being a material scientist, we have to look at very tiny structure of that tiny internal structure. Well, to comprehend like how tiny it is. For example, if you take one of your hairs and thin it down into thousand times, and that one tiny part of it, like these kind of features we see in it, those tiny structure in it provides a property such as strength or the toughness of the material. So by doing this heat treatment, we try to modify these tiny structures, which I'm going to refer as a microstructure, 
and modification of this microstructures changes the property of this material. That is true. You wouldn't need that much material whenever you're analyzing like the atomic structure of the superalloy. Whenever I was taking my biomaterials class, whenever I was in my undergraduate degree, I remember learning that people would use little pieces of bone just to understand the structure of it. So you have a furnace that you're heating up the superalloy. How big is this furnace, and how much of that superalloy do you need for your experiments? Thank you for comparing with the biomaterial. Yes, we also use a very small amount, like the bones used for research. So these can be like one centimeter cube, small tiny pieces in the furnace, and these furnaces can be very similar to your oven in the kitchen. But the capacity for this is like it goes up to fifteen hundred degrees Celsius. I guess it wouldn't be economically reasonable to make a furnace small enough to just heat up a little nanomaterial sample that you would have, and that you would instead use multiple nano samples and put them all in the furnace at the same time. Is what I'm imagining, anyways. Once you've done this heat treatment to the superalloys, how do you study what kind of changes were made to the superalloy? Can you see any structural changes that are made to the superalloy on a deep and small microscopic level? Yes, Daniel. When we heat it, we see a lot of changes in the microstructure, and so is in the change in the property of the material. But to observe that, we need to use a sophisticated instrument, and that I'm going to refer as a microscope. To imagine a microscope, you can imagine a magnifying glass and put like thousands of magnifying glasses together, and then see the power of it. My research, I'm using a particular microscope, which is called transmission electron microscope, which is one of the highest power magnifying glass you can say. And in this microscopes, similar to a light source, we use electron source, and where these electrons hit the metals, the sample pieces we are interested to look in, and they bounces, they cross transmit it, and then they create an image of it, and that's how we are able to look at their microstructures. After you put the superalloy in the furnace, it's very hot afterwards. How would you be able to get that on the microscope and observe it without damaging it? Unfortunately, we have to damage that sample. So first, I let it cool the sample when I heat it to a room temperature, and then we have to cut it down in a time. And then I take a thin slice from that sample, and then I have to polish it down to a very thin micro level, like the size of a plastic, and then polishing it. I make it、uh, thin enough so that this electron can pass through it, and that's how we look at it. Thanks for explaining that. It helps us understand how you're heating up these metal superalloys, and then how you're able to then treat it afterwards to be able to take an image of it. But if you're going to end up taking a thin sample of it anyways, why do you heat it up in the first place? My research is all about actually heating this superalloy and cooling it down and looking at the properties. So as I mentioned, that when you actually heat this alloy, there is a change in the microstructure and which changes the property. In my research, I'm trying to get a best property so that it can withstand higher temperature. And heating of this superalloys at a particular temperature for a particular amount of a time can changes a lot. So the small change in the temperature changes the property a lot. So in my research, I'm trying to get the exact property and the duration of time for it. So it's very similar how you bake a cake. So when you're baking a cake, you try to set a particular amount of time and temperature. And if it's not perfect, your baking is not perfect. So to make a recipe, you come up with a particular amount of temperature and time. And in my research, I'm also trying to find a perfect recipe for heating my sample so that the properties can be optimized for high temperature application. 
I recall that you said that your furnace could heat up to 1500 Celsius. What is the temperature range that you're doing your experiments at? Yeah, my temperature can go up to 1500 degrees Celsius, but in my research, I heat in the range of 700 degrees Celsius to 1100 degrees Celsius. That's still a pretty large temperature range to work with. Whenever you're looking at the thin films of your superalloy using the transmission electron microscope, what kind of surface do you see? Do you see something jagged like a mountain range, or is it a lot smoother? Well, talking about the surface of the sample, that superalloy, we try to make it as smooth as possible. But when we look at the images, this is a different story. In the images, this looks like the structures can be very different, like starting from a line to a mountain or anything. Then looking at the images, it looks totally different. It has different features on it, like starting from a point or a line to a looking like a mountain on it. And these tiny structures, these affects the property of it. Makes sense that at different temperatures, you're seeing different structures within the super alloy. Whenever you see the structure looking like a straight line or like a mountain, for example, does the strength of that super alloy also correlate with how the structure is looking? Oh yes, absolutely. So the microstructure of any metal or alloy actually decides the strength or the property of it. So for the particular application of any metal or alloy, the only way to decide is by its microstructure. So the application of any metal or alloy is totally decided by the microstructure. That's the internal structure of it. So for example, in my super alloy, we see tiny spherical balls in my material, and those tiny structures actually provide strength to it. It always fascinates me how something as simple as the arrangement of atoms can really impact things like how strong a kind of metal, or in this case, the super alloy, is going to be. One thing that's really unique about this super alloy, like you had mentioned, is that it's made up of 18 different elements. Are there any other kinds of super alloys that exist that have different numbers of elements mixed in there together? And what are some of the advantages or disadvantages that come along with those other super alloy recipes? Yeah, there are different types of super alloys. My research focuses on nickel-based super alloys, so majorly I have fifty percent nickel in it. But there are other super alloys which contains majorly cobalt, iron, uh, such that. But the disadvantage with the other super alloys that they rust at high temperatures and which damages the property of it. But This nickel-based super alloy it can withstand with strength as well as the corrosion resistance at high temperature, which makes it perfect for the flight engine application in the hottest section. Yeah, I'm not surprised that it's heavy when half of it is nickel, and then there's a ton of other metals in there. I know that you said that this can be used in a flight engine, and even earlier you had said that it can be used in a nuclear reactor. But what are some other applications for this, and where do you hope that it can also be applied in the future? In my research, I'm focusing on a particular application, which is flight engine, being specific in the combustion zone where the highest temperature gets inside the engine. So I'm trying to make the property better so that it can go a little higher temperature than the existing one. And increasing the surface temperature of this alloy can actually increase the efficiency of your engine. So with the same amount of fuel, you can fly faster or longer, which means it's going to reduce the overall cost of your flying. Well, I'm sure commercial airline passengers will be really thrilled to see the amount that it would cost to take a flight go down because of the increased efficiency of this super alloy being used as part of the flight engine. 
is material science something that you want to continue to pursue once you're completed with your PhD? And what kind of plans do you have for afterwards? Yes, a definite yes. I want to continue my career as a material scientist. I want to keep looking at the microstructure of these metals or alloys, but not just the super alloys. I want to use my expertise of looking at the microstructure at different type of alloys. So I can say that I want to be a microscopist in future. Yeah, there's so much that we can learn from transmission electron microscopy. And I'm so glad that you want to continue this research with other alloys in the future because there's so much more that we have yet to learn. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gita, and good luck on the rest of your PhD. Thank you, Chelsea and Daniel, for having me. Thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.